You are listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of the deaths at the Fremont Canyon Bridge. is a vast state, but sparsely populated. It's the home of the Yellowstone National Park, the first of its kind in the world to preserve the area's natural landscape and wildlife. The state is both flat, wide expanses of plains and rocky outcrops of mountains. It's a unique place of extremes. In the winter, it's bitterly cold, and though temperatures do rise in the summer months, It's also the most windswept of states. The capital is Cheyenne, with a population of just under 60,000. A close second is the city of Casper, with 55,000 people living there. And it's to Casper we go this week, the Casper of the 1970s. The town was originally established at a crossing point of the North Plate River, back in the days of the Oregon Trail, but soon it became an oil town. Today, many people there still work in the energy industry. And in 1973, Jack Chase worked in the energy industry. He was from Casper, but he was working out of Mexico at the time. His wife and her kids lived in the town, though, and they'd come down to visit him every so often and enjoy the sunshine and weather that came with the territory down south. His wife, Tony had a few kids. Her eldest was Becky Thompson. She also had an 11-year-old daughter, too, Amy Burridge. The summer of 1973, Tony, Becky, and Amy traveled to Mexico for a vacation before school started up again. That year, Becky had just graduated high school. She was 18, and she had her own car. She was an example of an independent, older teen to the younger ones in the neighborhood. She was a kind girl, thoughtful, bubbly, and full of life. Amy was in sixth grade, and she was a tomboy. Most of her friends were boys. She loved sports and was brave and plucky, and definitely put on a tough face for the world. But she was a sweet kid as well, also thoughtful and kind. On the 24th of September 1973, Amy had gone to school and spent the evening tossing a football around with some neighborhood boys her age. When it got too dark for sports, they sat down on the grass and talked. It was a normal Monday evening. Then Becky pulled up in her car and asked if Amy wanted to go with her to the store. The boys with Amy had been invited too, but it was after nine, and they weren't allowed. It was a school night after all. So Becky and Amy got into the car to run to the store for their mother. She had a short list of groceries to get, and the girls were happy to run out for her, especially Amy, given that there was a promise of a treat from the store for her too. The two girls quickly arrived at the Thriftway store, which was less than a mile away. They went into the store and picked up their items, but when they got back to the car, they noticed that one of the back tires was flat. Becky had only just had a flat, and though there was a spare in her trunk, it was flat too. They found a payphone and called home. Amy told her mom what had happened and said that she and Becky would be home soon. Two nice men had offered them a ride home. Meanwhile, back at their house, the girl's mother, Tony, had been worried. They had already been gone longer than they should have for the short trip to the store. There were only a few items on the list for them, just some necessities that were needed, given that they had just returned from the trip to Mexico. With school the next day, Amy in particular needed to get home and get to bed. But with the phone call received, Tony relaxed and sat down to await the girl's arrival home. But 45 minutes after Tony received the call, 
there was still no sign of the girls. It was a five-minute drive, if that, from the thriftway back to their house, so Tony quickly changed out of her pyjamas and jumped into her own car to drive the route north along the streets that the girls might have taken if they had ended up having to walk home. She saw no sign of the girls on her way there, but when she arrived at the thriftway, Becky's car was in the parking lot. It did indeed have a flat tire, but there were no groceries and no girls. The store was closed by that stage too, so Tony got back into her car and drove slowly along the streets between the shop and their home. She did this for over two hours, but finally gave up at half twelve and called the police to notify them of her two missing daughters. Tony was told that the cops on duty overnight would be on the lookout for them, but there wasn't anyone on duty to actually start a search until the next morning. It was a small town after all. But by that time, it would be too late. Becky and Amy had been brought out to the Fremont Canyon Bridge, over 35 miles from their home in Casper, by the two men that had stopped to help them in the parking lot of the Thriftway the night before. Both of them had gone through the motions of beginning to jack Becky's car up, as if to change the burst tire, but then one had pulled a knife and ordered the two girls into the back of the men's vehicle. It was the same knife that they later told the girls they'd used to slash Becky's back tire. The men got in after them and began driving south, towards Casper Mountain, and then finally onto Fremont Canyon. They drove around for two or three hours, every so often beating the girls and taunting them. It was torture for them. One of the men, the one whose name seemed to be Kenny, was more violent than the other. He was a skinny guy with crazy eyes. When they reached the point where the bridge crossed the river, the men stopped the car. They said that they had to find out what they were to do with the girls and had to ask some other man, a friend of theirs, what to do. This man, they said, had the answer as to whether the girls would live or die. One of the men, Kenny, took Amy out of the car while the other held Becky in the back of the car. Kenny said that they had to bring the girls to the mysterious man one at a time and that he wanted the little one first. Becky couldn't move and didn't see what happened to her sister. She begged that they would be brought in to wherever they were going together or for them to let her go in first and talk to the man, but Kenny ignored her. And then he came back for Becky. The two men raped her. When they were finished with their attack, they threw Becky, now only partially clothed, over the guardrail of the bridge. She fell a hundred and twelve feet, bouncing off the cliffside and into the river below, finally hitting the cold water beneath her. Bruised and battered and in shock, she pulled herself towards the bank of the river and back up onto the dirt. As she lay there, she heard the voices of the men who had attacked her and her sister above her. She could see no sign of the younger girl. There were no signs or sounds of movement nearby her. Becky knew that if she closed her eyes and succumbed to the pain and shock her body was in, no one would know that she and her sister were down in the gorge. There would be no one to help little Amy and no one to tell people what had happened to them. The men, thinking that they had thrown the two girls into the canyon and to their deaths, got back into their car and drove off. But they were wrong. Carl and Dorothy Strasser were going fishing the morning of the 25th of September, a few hours after Tony Case had called the police to report her daughter's missing. The couple decided that rather than take the highway, they'd opt to drive the more scenic route that morning, and as they drove across the 60-foot iron bridge spanning the canyon, they spotted something red moving by the roadside. It was Becky. She was soaked and dirty. The red they'd seen was her jumper. It was torn and she was naked from the waist down. She lay on the ground, 
feebly waving her arm to try and get their attention. The elderly couple pulled over the car and scooped up the teenaged girl, wrapping her in a coat and putting her in the back of the car. She told them about Amy, what had happened to them, and that she had been thrown from the bridge too. Dorothy put the heater on full blast in the car, while Carl went to peer down into the gorge for any sign of the other girl, but there was none. And so he returned to the car, turned it around and sped ten miles back down the road to Sloane's store, where Carl called for an ambulance and the sheriff. Both arrived twenty minutes later, and Becky told her story to the sheriff before the ambulance headed to the nearest hospital. Then the search for eleven-year-old Amy began. That morning, investigator Dave Dovala was assigned the missing persons case that had come in the night before. When he arrived in the office, there were other detectives present, but no one had been given the case. He was on his way out to the convenience store when he got a message to call the station. That was a sign of bad news. Whatever information that had come in for him was deemed too sensitive to broadcast on the police radio channels. It was the news that Becky had been found and had been brought to the hospital. And so Dovala headed there, where he met Tony Chase and the chief investigator in Casper, Bill Claxon. They had all arrived before the ambulance and were told that Becky was en route and on her own. A search had started for her sister, but she was presumed dead. Becky arrived at 9.40. She was dirty and bloody and badly injured. X-rays would show that her pelvis had been broken in five places. One of her eyes was swollen shut and a doctor had to carefully remove her contact lens from it. She told the detectives what happened, that the car had gotten a flat, that the men had offered to help, but then forced her and Amy into the car and beaten them and thrown them from the bridge. She was able to describe both men to the police, though. Kenny, who had also seemed to go by the name Ronnie, was a tall, skinny guy with bug eyes. Jerry was a short, fat, greasy guy. The investigators recognized the names and the descriptions. They belonged to two outcast small-time criminals, Jerry Jenkins, the fat one, and Ron Kennedy, the skinny guy. Within a few hours, Dovala had Ron Kennedy in custody. After the hospital, he'd driven over to Kennedy's mother's home, where Ron lived with his wife, and sat outside the house there until Ron and Larry were spotted driving around town in Ron's old green pickup truck. Dovala had headed off in pursuit and finally caught up with Kennedy as he stopped at a red light on Casper's Main Street, just outside the old courthouse. Dovala jumped from his car and pulled his gun on Ron, who was now in the car on his own, and ordered the man out of the car. It was very dramatic stuff for a Tuesday lunchtime in Casper. Meanwhile, there was a search ongoing for 11-year-old Amy back in Fremont Canyon. Usually, divers wouldn't venture into water on their own, but in this case, only one of the volunteer force had been able to arrive quickly after the call went out. There was a rock located with a smear of blood left on it near the bank, and that was where he went in. A diver was needed because within feet of the side of the gorge, the river dropped to a depth of over 30 feet. Within minutes, he had found Amy Burridge's body hovering just above the silty bottom of the river. Back at the courthouse, in a basement office, Ron Kennedy was Mirandized and informed he was being arrested in relation to assault, kidnapping, murder, and rape. Ron was a long-time criminal and was unfazed by the procedure, challenging the officials around him when he was informed of the charges. He asked them how were they going to prove that he had anything to do with it when there were no witnesses. It was then that he was informed that one of the girls was still alive. Across town, Jerry Jenkins was also arrested. He'd avoided driving his car and was making his way around on foot, but still cops got wind of his location 
He was arrested at a liquor store. When he was patted down, police found a pocket knife on him. During his interview, Jerry Lee Jenkins placed the blame squarely on Ron Kennedy's shoulders. He told police that he'd had no idea what Ron had intended, and that when it was clear that Ron was getting violent, he spent the remainder of the girl's ordeal in the car trying to get the other man to calm down, and to agree to let the girls go. Jenkins refused to tell police whether or not he'd raped or sexually assaulted Amy, but did tell them that he'd assisted Ron in throwing Becky over the bridge. He said that that night he'd gotten home around two. He'd spent the night fighting with his wife, and by the following morning spoke to Ron saying that he wanted to go to the police and tell them what they'd done. But Ron refused. Jenkins told the cops that, yeah, he'd been a criminal nearly all his life, but he insisted that he'd never hurt anyone before. That statement was only partially true. Jerry Lee Jenkins had been a criminal nearly all his life. He had lived an unsettled home life, never able to cope under the strict discipline expected from his father. He dropped out of high school and was in and out of prison for various petty crimes, robbery and theft and check forgery, drunk driving, vagrancy, and so on. But a few years before, Jenkins had got himself into some serious trouble with Ron Kennedy's older brother, Jim. The two had grabbed a 19-year-old off the street and raped and assaulted her before dumping her behind a shop front with the threat that if she told anyone what had happened, they'd come after her. She went to the police and identified her attackers, but after testifying against Jim Kennedy, the girl didn't want to put herself through the trauma of another trial and dropped the charges against Jerry Lee Jenkins. As news spread through the town of Casper that something awful had happened, the police gave a press conference confirming that two girls had been abducted and then thrown from the bridge the night before, and that an 11-year-old girl was dead. Two men were in custody. Rage boiled openly in the community, and people even tried to raise bail for the two men, so that vigilante justice might be given a chance to take care of the men accused of such a heinous crime. Ron Kennedy and Jerry Jenkins were moved to two separate county jails, over a hundred miles from Casper for their own safety, and each was assigned a public defender to put together the cases each would present in court. Ron Kennedy spent a month in a mental institution, and both men were assessed by psychiatrists. It was determined that both men were fit to stand trial, but both suffered from personality disorders which, when combined, made them violent and liable to commit vicious crimes. The determination seemed to be on that front that, apart, they were unpleasant, but together, these men were dangerous. By April the next year, 1974, seven months after the crimes were committed, Jenkins and Kennedy's trial began in Cheyenne, 170 miles from Casper. There had been a change of venue applied for and granted in an attempt to procure a jury untainted by the hate that their hometown held for the two. After the twelve members of the jury were seated, there was a brief opening statement made where the prosecutor warned the jurors that the case that was being put before them was an horrific one and that they would be asked to hear and see terrible things but it was up to them to determine the truth of the matter, and the prosecutor, Mr. Burke, said he was sure that they would agree that not only had Jenkins and Kennedy raped and murdered that night out on the Fremont Canyon Bridge, they'd known that that's what they were going to do all along. They'd known that they were going to rape and murder that night before they'd even slish open the tire on Becky Thompson's car. The first witness to the stand was Becky Thompson. She described her ordeal for the jury, from the flat tire and meeting the men in the parking lot, 
to finding out her little sister had died while she was in the hospital bed the next morning. She told the court how at first the two men seemed nice, and they accepted a ride home from them. But when Becky asked to be brought straight back to their house, she said that the man calling himself Kenny had exploded in a violent rage and had beaten the girls who were in the back of their car. The car was a two-door white Impala, and they were effectively trapped back there as the man Becky now identified as Ron Kennedy held both girls by the throat, threatening them. Becky was able to show on a map the route that had been driven, around Casper and then out towards the mountain. She said that she and Amy had begged to be let go and asked what the men were going to do with them. Ron Kennedy said that they had taken the girls because they and their car had matched the description of people involved in a hit-and-run with a friend of theirs a few days ago. He told the girls that they were bringing him to this injured man, and if he said that these weren't the girls involved, they'd be let go. Becky told the court that Kennedy said he had split her tire on purpose. When they arrived at the bridge at Fremont Canyon, that's where Becky thought that they were, at this other man's house. She said that when Ron Kennedy took Amy from the car, he was only gone a few minutes, but returned without her. Then both men had raped her in the back of the car and pulled her out when they were done. They tried to force her over the three-foot barrier into the gorge below, but even between the two of them, they weren't able to get Becky up and over. She fought them like hell until, as Jenkins had his hands wrapped around her throat, Kennedy yelled, quote, Make sure she's going to die, end quote. At that point, Becky explained to the court that she had decided to take the chance with the fall into the gorge rather than let Jenkins strangle her. So she went limp. Jenkins let go and she fell, a hundred and twelve feet into the water below. She had managed to pull herself out of the water and onto a sandy part of the canyon floor and sat there all night half-naked and freezing. Her jeans had come off while she struggled in the water. The next morning, she picked the part of the cliff with the gentlest of inclines and scooted herself up it backwards. She couldn't stand. She had slipped back down a number of times before she finally made it to the side of the road and waved down the couple who rescued her. Cross-examination by both defence attorneys was, thankfully, quite gentle for Becky. She was asked by Kennedy's lawyer whether his client had seemed crazy that night, which Becky confirmed. Jenkins' lawyer wanted her to agree that Kennedy had been in charge that night, which Becky confirmed was mostly true, except for when Jenkins had turned to her and threatened her by saying that he could get Kennedy to do whatever he wanted. Then Becky was allowed to leave the stand, her questioning over. Next to the stand was Dorothy Strasser, who described finding the bloodied girl on the side of the road. She was followed by a sheriff who had attended the scene at the canyon and found two areas with blood left on the rocky cliffside. After him was the rescue diver who found Amy Burge's body. Neither defence team had any questions for those witnesses. One of the doctors who treated Becky at the hospital gave evidence next. He described first seeing Becky in a hospital bed, piled high with blankets because she was so cold. She was dirty and bloody, but was conscious and alert. In court, he was given an outline of a woman's body, which he marked every time he described a wound that Becky had endured, so the jury could picture the injury she had in totality. There was a large gash, almost down to muscle, on her left hip. There were deep abrasions to her backside from the fall down the cliffside. Her arms and legs were covered in dark bruises. Her face was swollen from blunt force trauma, probably inflicted by fists. Her eyes were red with blood, and there were finger-shaped bruises around her neck. Her pelvis was broken in five places. There were also internal injuries indicating sexual assault. Another doctor took the stand next, Dr. James Thorpin, who had examined Amy Burridge's body. 
She had broken ribs and a punctured lung. She had hit the side of the gorge headfirst at one point, causing fatal trauma to her brain due to a ring fracture. Evidence of the arrests of both Ron Kennedy and Jerry Jenkins was given, and of the search of Jerry Jenkins' white Impala. Experts from the FBI Washington, D.C. laboratory described the forensic evidence recovered to the court. There were blood spatters found in the back of the car on the windows, which matched Amy and Becky's blood types. Hair found on the floor mats of the car were also found to be consistent with those of the two girls. And John Hicks stated that in his experience, the condition of the root of the hair indicated that they had been pulled from the head, rather than having simply fallen out as normal. Evidence was also heard regarding the contact lens matching those worn by Becky at the time, which was found on the car floor. The local Casper optometrist was brought in to confirm that the contact was a match for Becky's prescription to the jury. He said that the chances that they belonged to anyone else was incredibly low. Only 13 other people in the US would have the same kind of lenses and the one he examined that had been in the back of the Impala was scratched and broken very badly. With that, two days of evidence presented by the prosecution was over. There would be no question of admitting into evidence Jerry Jenkins' confession to the police. The suspects were being tried for murder together, and therefore accomplice evidence was inadmissible. Neither police statements were any use to the state to prove their case, particularly as in Wyoming at the time there was no conspiracy charge available to the prosecution. The next day, a Friday, was spent in legal argument behind closed doors in the judges' chambers. The men had been charged with trying to conceal a felony by committing murder. However, the defense argued that the actual murder, that of young Amy, had occurred before the felony the rape of Becky. Therefore, they said the two men had been improperly charged. Becky had lived, and therefore the charge didn't apply there either. Judge Raper said that he would consider the argument, but ultimately decided to reject it. After a break for the weekend, it was time for the defense teams to make their opening statements. John Ackerman was representing Kennedy and said that he would show that his client suffered from a mental illness and was insane at the time of the crime. Don Shapin for Jenkins said that he would not be putting on a defense. His client had just gone along with Kennedy's actions, and Shapin said that he expected that the jury would not find that the state had proved its case against his client. The first witness called for Ron Kennedy's defense was his mother, Hilda Kennedy. She described her son's upbringing. He was the fourth of six children and the youngest of her and her husband's sons. She had been the main breadwinner in the family due to the fact that her husband was an alcoholic and only worked sporadically. She described Ron's dad as a normal father, except for when he was drunk. He was liable to hit the kids for no reason, and he seemed to get great amusement from scaring Ron and belittling him. She said Ron was a sickly child skinny, and always suffering from some ailment or other. He had nightmares about monsters and was irrationally afraid of storms and lightning. In short, even his mom thought he was a strange kid. The fear of storms, though, that lasted into adulthood. At the first sign of lightning, Ron would cover windows and doors with towels and sheets or newspaper, or his own head if need be, to avoid seeing the foul weather. Kennedy's lawyer had hoped that the testimony would show that his client was disturbed from an early age, but his mother's stories of his childhood fears fell a bit short. Next to the stand was Ray Sternberg, who had seen Kennedy and Jenkins the day of the crimes. The pair had turned up at a roadside bar that he worked at, and the pair had managed to convince the owner to give them credit for beer and whiskey at the bar. They were in and out all day, drinking continuously, though Sternberg said that Kennedy hadn't seemed particularly drunk when he handed over the beer. 
A local doctor that had treated Kennedy told the court about his examination of Kennedy, who had come to him complaining of hives, dizziness, and a feeling of being half awake and half asleep. The doctor ran tests and so on, but they were all inconclusive, and in the end he suspected stress and prescribed a tranquilizer. Frank, Ron's brother-in-law, married to the eldest Kennedy girl, told the court about some strange spells that Ron had taken. They seemed to occur when Kennedy was drinking. He'd stare off into space, become incoherent, or black out. He'd also begun to act irrationally, becoming agitated and aggressive, and complaining of strange sensations, such as buzzing over his head or feeling that someone was following him. Kennedy's most current wife, his third, brought the letters that he had written to her from jail while he was awaiting trial to read to the court, in an attempt to show his state of mind. Then his first wife, Jane, described how her former husband had stalked her when they separated, and eventually grabbed her off the street and forced her to have sex with him, he said, in order to somehow stop the divorce she had just filed. Another longtime friend and drinking partner, a local bartender named Lorraine, described witnessing the same sort of fits Kennedy's brother-in-law saw, where Kennedy would stare off, lose time, speak nonsense, and get aggressive. The final witness called was another doctor who had treated Kennedy, who had concluded that he suffered from an abnormally high heart rate, possibly caused by his nerves. This doctor referred his patient to a psychiatrist, but Kennedy only went once. Neither Kennedy nor Jenkins decided to give evidence in their own defence, and told the court for the record that their lawyers had advised that it was within their rights to do so if they wished. But both took the advice of their legal representatives and kept quiet. There was no good to be done for their cases if either man got on the stand. After this, another medical professional was called to give evidence, this time by the prosecutor, in order to rebut the argument being put forward by Kennedy's defence, that he was insane and therefore not responsible for his actions. This was Dr. Lincoln Clark, a psychiatrist who had met with Kennedy while he was under observation in the mental health facility. They met four times, totaling about three hours of interactions. Dr. Clark had also been permitted to sit in on the rest of the trial to hear the testimony offered from Kennedy's friends and family about his background and family history. It was his opinion that Kennedy suffered from antisocial personality disorder, which fit with what he had heard from the witnesses for the defence. Kennedy had poor social judgment, poor emotional control, he was vindictive and bad-tempered. His childhood fears were common and normal, and weren't part of some larger mental health issue he had. Dr. Clark said definitively that Kennedy knew right from wrong, and understood the consequences of his actions. He was not insane, as the law understands the term. Mr. Ackerman, Kennedy's lawyer, then took to his feet to cross-examine Dr. Clark. His testimony had badly hurt his already weak case. He asked the psychiatrist about the possibility of Kennedy having schizophrenia or suffering from bouts of psychosis. Clark said, however, that while Kennedy clearly suffered from a mental disorder, he wouldn't have described it in that way, and further would not have treated it medically given the behaviour he had observed while Kennedy was in the care of the state facility. The mental disorder that Ron Kennedy had wasn't likely to ever be treated successfully with medication, but still it fell short of the legal definition of insanity. Then both lawyers gave short closing speeches. Ackerman saying that Kennedy had had a terrible upbringing, he was mentally ill, even Becky had described him as acting insane and having crazy eyes. He said it was up to the state to prove that his client was sane, and he argued that they had not done that. Shapin summed up his client's case quickly too, saying Jenkins had never set out with the intention to hurt or kill anyone, and that the responsibility lay with Ron Kennedy for what had happened that night. That Tuesday evening, the 30th of April 1974, the jury began deliberations. 
Only one of the nine men and three women had any hesitation in the finding of guilt and the mandatory death sentence that followed. By 10pm, the jury gave word that they had reached their verdict. Both men were found guilty of assault and battery, of rape and of murder. The next day, Judge Raper sentenced both Jenkins and Kennedy to serve 13 years for their assaults and no less than 35 years each for the counts of rape against them. Judge Raper then confirmed to the men that they would both face death in the gas chamber for the murder of Amy Burridge on the 25th of September, 1974. When asked if they had anything to say by the judge, Jenkins decided to keep quiet. But Kennedy said, quote, Up until yesterday, I've always believed in law and justice. But the last several days, going through what I went through and seeing what I've seen happen is, as far as I'm concerned, a miscarriage of justice. End quote. Jenkins and Kennedy were sent immediately to death row, housed in the Wyoming State Penitentiary. There they were confined in small, nearly bare rooms that looked out onto the gas chamber itself right next to the disused platform of the gallows. But their sentences came at an interesting time in America's history of the death penalty. Two years before, in 1972, capital punishment was effectively suspended due to a ruling of the Supreme Court. The case in question was Furman and Georgia, but this was actually a consolidation of a number of similar cases. The Furman case specifically was in reference to what was called a unitary trial procedure, whereby a jury would be asked to consider its verdict of guilt or innocence, and at the same time, consider whether to impose a life sentence or the death penalty. William Furman had broken into a house to rob it, but the occupiers had woken up while he was inside, and Furman fled. While he was doing so, he said he tripped and accidentally discharged his gun. The bullet hit the homeowner, who died, and so Furman then faced a felony murder charge. He was convicted and sentenced to death. The two other cases, Jackson and Georgia and Branch and Texas, both involved rape charges, which had resulted in sentences of death. The U.S. Supreme Court came back with a 5-4 to four decision in favour of the applicant, the men subject to the death penalty. But despite the majority ruling, there was little agreement as to the reasoning behind that decision. To make a long story short, most of the Supreme Court justices found that the imposition of the death penalty was often arbitrary, and that this constituted cruel and unusual punishment in that context. So, with this decision, the imposition of death penalty sentences was effectively halted. The decision hadn't said that it was on its face cruel and unusual for the state to execute prisoners, but just that the procedures that were in place at that time in the states made the imposition of that sentence unconstitutional. That decision was delivered on the 29th of June, 1972. With this ruling in mind, Wyoming had passed legislation to deal with the new requirements set out by the Supreme Court charges of murder where there was an aggravating factor, that is, where murder had occurred alongside something else, like trying to cover up a crime such as rape, would automatically result in the imposition of capital punishment in the case of conviction. It would no longer be up for a jury to decide if that sentence was appropriate or not. They were to focus just on guilt or innocence. But in 1976, the United States Supreme Court issued another judgment in a compiled case relating to the imposition of the death penalty. Gregg and Georgia, and its four other included cases, saw the Supreme Court state that capital punishment in and of itself was not considered cruel and unusual punishment. It was a blow for those taking the cases, as they'd hoped that the judgment would mark the abolition of death sentences in the United States once and for all. However, the Supreme Court noted that some 35 states had introduced new laws to allow the death penalty after the Furman decision, such as it was, had been delivered. The law became further clarified at this point, with the United States Supreme Court saying that any legislative scheme to provide for the death penalty must include objective criteria that must be met in order to direct 
and limit the death sentencing discretion. There must also be an ability of whatever body, whether it be judge or jury, to take into account both mitigating and aggravating factors when passing sentence. An automatically imposed death sentence under this scheme was not allowed. And so, Wyoming's new legislation was deemed unconstitutional. Jenkins and Kennedy had both lodged appeals against their convictions within days of their death sentence being handed down. Both legal teams argued that the sentences were unconstitutional given the results of Furman. Eventually, their appeals made their way to the Wyoming Supreme Court, six months after the United States Supreme Court had decided the Gregg and Georgia case. The judges there found in the two men's favours, given the new rulings, and sent both men back down to the district court to be resentenced. They appeared before Judge Johnson, and both men were given the opportunity to speak before resentencing took place. At that hearing in April of 1977, both Jenkins and Kennedy made their arguments themselves, although they were accompanied by their legal teams. Jenkins said, not in so many words though, that he felt that the question of guilt or innocence at that point was moot, but wanted to say that he thought that a long sentence, like the one he expected to get, did nothing to rehabilitate someone, and that surely the judicial system was beyond mere punishment or revenge. Kennedy also spoke. He said that he didn't believe that he had been convicted with evidence that was beyond a reasonable doubt, and that he believed a consecutive sentence would also be unconstitutional. He didn't give any reasoning for that, though, of course. Judge Alan Johnson outlined the original sentences handed down by Judge Raper and his reasoning for them before imposing life sentences on both men for the murder of Amy. These were to be served consecutively with the 12 and 35-year stretches that they had been given for the assaults and rapes. It was unlikely but now possible that the men could be released on parole after serving out those initial sentences. Jenkins settled into prison life and lived there quietly until his death on the 29th of October 1998. The only thing of note that happened to him during his time behind bars was managing to re-establish a relationship with one of his children, a daughter who was two when Amy was killed. She hadn't really remembered ever living with him, but they wrote letters and spoke on the phone. He never looked for any relief on his sentence, and hardly ever attended the parole hearings for his assault and rape convictions. Jerry Lee Jenkins had a massive heart attack and was 54 when he passed. He was cremated and buried by family in a quick and private ceremony in Casper. Kennedy, too, found that he quickly adapted to his new routine in general population. He earned the trust of his guards and the warden and was soon allowed special privileges and was granted greater movement within the confines of the prison walls. At one point, he had a puppy, and in 1983, he was allowed to marry an old school friend. He was allowed weekend-long visits with his new wife in one of the designated trailers on the prison grounds. He spent a lot of time in the prison library and taught himself as much law as possible. He filed a number of unsuccessful appeals, including two writs of habeas corpus, which were eventually dismissed with prejudice in October of 1980. He had tried to argue that the consecutive punishments he had been sentenced to constituted multiple punishments and that he had been subject to double jeopardy. While in prison, he wrote what he called an autobiography, which seems to only loosely outline his life history leading up to the murder and rapes on Fremont County Bridge. In it, he's an anti-hero, a good boy turned bad after losing the love of his life. That seems to be how Ronald wanted others to see him, and how he wanted to see himself. Ronald Kennedy is housed today in a medium security facility in Torrington, Wyoming, and has no projected release date. He is 72 years old. As for Becky, after her sister's funeral, she and her mother returned to Mexico to be with her stepfather. She took a teaching job and tried to recover from the ordeal she had been through, 
and the trial that followed, but there she began drinking. Eventually, she moved back to Casper and ended up working in the ad sales department of a local radio station. She decided to stay there, even when her mom and stepdad moved out to California. She tried to put things behind her, but she couldn't. She sought help from a psychiatrist, and it's possible that one of the doctors who treated her assaulted her while she was undergoing so-called repressed memory therapy. Later, a number of women would file a civil lawsuit against that doctor and settle out of court. Becky eventually married a man named Russ Brown, a truck driver she had met while working at a convenience store she briefly worked in between radio station jobs. They dated for a while and Becky got pregnant, but she miscarried. Russ had proposed to her while she was in the hospital. They went on to have a little girl in 1990, but the marriage wasn't a happy one. There was no abuse or anything, just a distance that had grown between the two. And so the two divorced when their child was only six months old, and Becky set out on her own once again. By 1992, Becky was struggling. She was drowning in debt and considering filing for bankruptcy. She had few close friends and was thinking of ending things with the guy she'd been seeing. The only thing that they really had in common was drinking. She still drank too much and she'd been on and off various medications for her mental health. She started taking quite a bit of Xanax. A friend got her to start attending AA, which helped a bit, but Becky never stuck to anything for too long. On Friday, the 31st of July, 1992, Becky left work early, picked up her daughter, and went to the motel that her boyfriend was living in. They had a few drinks and then went for a drive. Her little girl was in the back of the car, too. Becky drove aimlessly around Casper, stopping to get cash and some beer, and then headed out of town, south, and a little to the west. For whatever reason, they ended up at the bridge over Fremont Canyon. The boyfriend was uncomfortable. He wanted to go. He hadn't wanted to come. It was awkward and weird and unnerving, but Becky sat on the edge of the bridge with her legs dangling over the side, looking down on the canyon and the river below. She pointed out the place she'd been raped, where Kennedy had taken Amy from the car, the point that she'd been thrown over the edge, and where their bodies had hit off the sides of the cliff as they fell. Becky started to cry. So did her daughter. Her boyfriend was at a loss. He hugged her and told her that they should go, that the baby shouldn't see her cry. Becky agreed, and the boyfriend lifted up the little girl and put her back in the car. When he turned back to Becky, she was gone. She had gone over the bridge. To this day, no one is certain whether this time the choice was hers. She was 37 years old. Becky Thompson's memorial service was held five days later in Casper. She was cremated, and her ashes were buried next to her sister Amy. An account of what happened to Amy and Becky that night was written by Ron Franchel, which forms the basis of the research for this episode. The Darkest Night tells their story and that of the aftermath of the crimes of Kennedy and Jenkins, but it's from the perspective of a person who lived through it. Francel, a journalist and novelist, is from Casper. He was 16 when Amy and Becky were abducted and lived close to the two girls. He knew them. In his book, he creates vivid portraits of the people involved, having interviewed many of them during his research. There are also many extracts from the memoir written by Ron Kennedy. If you want to know more about this story, then that is the place to start. Francel said that both girls died on that bridge that night in 1973, and that Becky died there twice. He was right. She never got over what happened to her there that night, and the guilt of surviving while Amy had died. Everything changed for her then. It seems the only thing unchanged by the events in Becky's life was the bridge over Fremont Canyon and the stones and river below it. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating 
honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. I love hearing from you, so do get in touch. You'll make my day. Also, I hope to see some of you at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago this next weekend, July the 13th. I'm super shy, so find me and come say hello, because I am effectively the opposite of a social butterfly. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to the voice you heard introducing this episode, Kate Much. As a top-tier supporter on Patreon, Kate chose the topic of this episode and also very kindly helped out with the research. Thank you so much for your support, Kate. It is very generous, and thank you for suggesting such a moving story to cover. A final thank you and happy birthday to a friend of the podcast, Clean Braid. She is legitimately one of the coolest people I know, so happy birthday, Clee. Next week, we're back in Ireland, down country. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod, additional music by Juanita Meisel. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. Sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. hosts a real life real crime the podcast join me each week to hear true and unscripted stories of the cases i actually worked during my career as a major crime investigator in south louisiana go to real life real where you can listen to each week's episodes and find links to our social media i appreciate y'all don't let me catch you down on the bike.